Listening to World Your Oyster. You've got the superstar Paula Sanders over here, and I got on my Parada shades, and I am a whole entire vibe. But I'm also here she with Mo. Is. What's <laughs> up, everybody? I am just on a shirt vibe, so here we go. I just got back from getting my nails done, yeah, and I gotta say, it's gonna be an interesting two and a half weeks because these are not the nails of somebody that has a job, okay? These are the nails of somebody that maybe is a rapper or an influencer. That is full on influencer. Like you are ready to walk down. I don't know what I was thinking. I You're have a in a hip hop video. I am in a hip hop video. Now I can't stop talking about my hands. So like now I am, I am Angie Martinez. <laughs> yes. I am. Um, uh, we're on hot 97. We're on hot 97. Okay. That's right. hot, we are on hot well, 97. Breakfast, breakfast club. Here exactly. she comes. Exactly. So, um, oh, so I guess that my nails do fit my part-time job that, you know, is like a thankless lover. Yeah. But, but that's okay. <laughs> Uh, but the job that is, that the bill. is that what we're calling it now? Thankless lover yes. is, like, is a podcast host. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like a thankless lover. But I'll never stop, honey. I'll ne- I will never give up on you. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, the job that actually pays the bills. I don't know how I'm going to make it through the next two and a half with these because it's going to be like. I can't wait for my, all of my, the comments. Yeah, my team is going to be like, what's going on? So anyway, uh, we bought the camera in real close today so you could check these out. And I got the matching glasses on just because That's you needed right. to know like what my vibe is for the week. Anyway, do you want to get into the Full pearls in your character. oyster? I'll give you the pearl in my oyster. Why don't we get into the pearls of our oysters this week? You want to hear the pearl in my oyster? Wait, is that the pearl in your oyster? Yeah, let's make it that. Oh <laughs> my God, okay. Okay, so the Pearl of My Oyster is we've wrapped up the Knicks in season and they are on to the playoffs, which is very exciting. That's a rare occurrence. They've been... No, last year they made it too. Or did we not make it? I don't know. I should know. We don't know Uh, anything about sports. But you know what? It was a surprise is what it was because we didn't start off the season strong. But you know, I'm not as invested in them as I am in the actual dancers. But the pearl is, so we started working with some male dancers this year and I had one of our male dancers who really thought that his body was breaking and that he was never going to be able to dance again and that he had all of these really massive injuries that were going to end his career. And as I worked with them just a little bit, it was like little increments through the season. On this last game, he um, had a whole conversation with me and I had a young athletic trainer who was shadowing me and witnessed him really declare the fact that he has completely shifted his mindset. He knows that his body is not breaking. He's implemented all the things that we've done. And he's like, I feel like I'm gonna be able to go on. He stands taller, he stands bigger and brighter. And honestly, I was just having this like beautiful moment with him that I have often, but it was the the woman that was shadowing me that she turned to me and she said, you must feel amazing. And I was like, I felt so heart warmed and normal, but it took that, it took her to show me like, this is really freaking awesome. And I was like, you know, I really do feel amazing for him, but thank you for letting me feel amazing for me. So that really was the highlight of that last game. And I'm pumped now to go into our final season. Amazing. Well, good for you doing the Lord's work. We're doing the Lord's work, healing people over here left and right. Yeah, I can't say I'm doing the Lord's work. That's for sure. Listen, girlfriend, (laughs) the Lord needs all of your creativity and your work. You're doing it. I'm just doing my best here. What's Um, the pearl in your oyster? Well, it's not really a pearl, I would say. It's more of like a realization. Tell me. Um, so Tell this, the people. This weekend, I went home. It was a holiday, but I did make a special trip home, actually, to do an interview with my father, who is an incredible guy in so many different ways. And 
you know, we're both creatives. My father is a dancer, just as I am. He owns dance schools and dance competitions. And he basically like, you know, he's a showbiz man, right? Like we are, we are show people. I just happen to like go another route when I turned 25. Um, and, you know, this is actually the second time in my adult life that me and my dad were doing something together where the stakes were high, right? Mm-hmm. The first was actually my wedding where we put together this beautiful dance where we both completely messed it up. We even had to do a redo because they didn't play the beginning. And like, you that know, was the it, best. it was a whole thing. And then, you know, we ended up tripping all over each other because we never practiced in my dress, which was like, you know, whatever. So <gasps> that, was like, that was one show moment where like <laughs> together we both were just like, uh-huh. We didn't, we, we did not win a gold that day or a platinum medal. Okay. We, there we was got, no platinum medal that no, day, there was but no, there was, there was an honorable mention and then there was a special award. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but it's just like, now it's what I realized with me and my dad. It's like when the stakes are high, I think we both get nervous with each other and we just completely shit the bed. What happened? So, <laughs> so this one, so I go out to Long Island and, um, you know, my dad who literally, I mean, recording equipment and sound equipment is, is three quarters of his life. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like my, I'm new to this, this like, let's, I'm actually going to be honest with you. This was the only, the second time that I recorded without Mo completely setting up the studio and pressing record. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this was the only the second time I'm doing this. So we get through this beautiful interview. I mean, me and my dad are having some breakthroughs. So, you know, it, it's incredible. I give him a hug. I say, thank you so much for doing this with me an hour long of an interview. I looked down and I didn't press record. <laughs> oh my God. I didn't press record. <gasps> and uh, yeah. What was that reaction from both of you? My dad was like, I can't believe I didn't notice. Oh, he really took it. I he was like, I can't believe I didn't notice. I can't believe Go I dad. didn't notice. I was just so nervous to have this moment with my dad because, you know, like father-daughter relationships are interesting, especially as you get older, you know, they're mm-hmm. so deep, right? Yeah. And um, and my dad isn't very talkative either, but he has this beautiful story and I just wanted to make sure that I was able to tell it in the proper way and that I asked him my questions in an intelligent manner and that like he, you know, I just wanted it to be great. So I hit record on the camcorder, which is great. So I have I have this beautiful memory of me and my father on camera, mm-hmm. which is beautiful and it's raw and there's tears and it's like, it's incredible. But yeah, I don't know if we'll ever get the audio uh, for the for the podcast. So we'll, we'll make it happen. But, but he's actually video. super down to, uh, to do it again. So we might re-record. Fun. Uh, the, the next day was a holiday and like neither of us were in the mood, if I'm being honest, to like reshoot it again. <laughs> because it, it honestly- It takes a lot. It really was like, it was emotionally draining, I think for the both of us. For and sure. It was so cute, guys. I don't know why I'm, spo- I'm, these are so many spoilers, but when we when we realized that we didn't record it, he took the SD card and like the, the, the SD from the video from the video and like popped it into his computer and started to, he watched the whole thing <gasps> right away. Oh, that's really sweet. And then he was like, well, we could re-record it if you can't get the static out in the background, but like you should really try to figure out how we can salvage some of this because there's just so many moments that are like, you know, really raw and beautiful and like off the cuff. And I don't know that, I don't know that we'll be able to recreate that. Usually you can. And that was like, I think, I guess that's really the pearl of my oyster Good. is that he was so excited, even though like, 
you know, we, we screwed it up. And like, we honestly, we took that in stride, but he just wanted to watch it, which was like so cute. And he made sure that it was on his computer before I left. Good. He was like, it's on my computer, right? Aww. I have it, right? Well, cause he also has tech people. So like they can also, he has like real, it's not just me like ripping but things at the onto end of the day, So he, he can probably happy. fix it. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah, wanted yeah. to share that moment with he you. Did. And he did. And he wanted to make to sure, make sure he, he has it. it. He had it on his computer. So that was the beautiful pearl of my oyster. I don't know if you guys will ever get this episode. We'll see. Hopefully you will. Wish me luck this week, the next two weeks. I don't know how we're doing this, but on that note, this is Angie Martinez and we're signing out. Well, right. (laughs) Peace out, everybody. Peace out. (laughs) Talia Moda is a unicorn. She's a scientist and immunologist with a PhD. Uh, Hello, I said PhD. She is literally curing HIV. Not only that, Talia Zest for Life expands beyond her passion for her work, where she now finds herself at the intersection of art and science. She's tapped into her creative soul by writing her own sci-fi novel, and she's showing the world that nerds have swag. Welcome, Talia Moda. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Likewise. So today we're going to get a little geeky and you and, and Paula's eyes are going to glaze over at one point in time. <laughs> no, I'm, gonna, I'm really going to pay attention today, guys. Like I am going by the end of this, I'm going to be like the molecular time square of the Empire State Building is 797. That's very good. I, I don't know, know right? what any of that means, but it was fabulous. I don't think it, it, was a, it was a mixture of science and, um, and architecture. It was fabulous. <laughs> That's what we're going. Today, I guess. <laughs> so Talia, let's just give our listeners a brief little intro of where you grew up and how you've landed yourself here yeah. in New York. Well, I grew up, I guess, until I was seven in San Diego, where I was born. And then for a lot of weird reasons, we moved to upstate New York in the middle of nowhere on a farmland. So small town, less than 10,000 people. And I could not wait to leave. Okay. So then, yeah, I went back to California for university and then worked for a few years and lived abroad for a decade. Now was science part of your life when you were a child? Oh, absolutely. Cause I, you know what? Fun fact about Paul, I know this isn't about me today, but I used to have those little science experiment tests, like the, the little oh, kids, love them. like with the Bunsen burners. And there was one that was like a creepy crawler one where <laughs> like, I used to love science. And then that kind of went with me when like the boys came into the picture. But. Right, <laughs> as it usually does. Yeah. <laughs> so as science being a part of your life, did you always know that you wanted to go into some sort of research medicine? What was that next transition for you as you left upstate New York? Yeah, so I was always such an introvert and kind of exploring my backyard most of the times just with my cat (laughs) she would follow me everywhere and in my backyard you know we'd have these like old creeks and I would dig into rocks looking for salamanders and snakes to put in my little terrarium and I remember the first time I ever found a trilobite a fossil that's like 400 million years old you found that in your backyard yeah that's sick. I know. It was amazing. It's and I a thought, bug? I thought that would know it? what it's it was. A, a bug thing. I knew it was a trilobite. I didn't know exactly the prehistoric history of the trilobite's life. But the first I, beetle, right? Isn't yeah, the trilobite the like first that, beetle? Exactly. And I, I was so excited. I used to like science. <laughs> <laughs> and so I brought it to my class for, for show and tell that next Monday and thinking everyone's going to be so excited. And the girl before me had like the new totally hair Barbie. Well, of course she did. Yeah. <laughs> and so like everyone wanted to touch it and pull out the hair, blah, blah, blah. And I like was so excited to bring my trilobite and nobody cared. So I was like, 
well, these people are clearly idiots because this thing is like a piece of history of our planet. Right. But look at you being like so about that and what at such a young age. Like if that happened to me, I probably would have cried. But you were like, well, these people are dumb. Like <laughs> exactly. This is, I would this have is been a piece so of mortified. Our history. Like how old were you when you were thinking that way? Probably ten. Wow. <laughs> oh my goodness. So you always felt that you were kind of above and outside of the group. Does that make sense? Yeah, I didn't really, I wasn't really part of any group. That's why. Okay. So you were truly in your individual sense and then you graduated and what led you now into going back to California for university? Well, first, I guess a lacrosse scholarship. And then the other part of that was it was the second university in our country back then it's aging myself now that had a degree in genetics. So tell us a little, little bit more about that. So because I was such a nerd and exploring my own things, in high school we had a project in our AP English class to like choose a book. So I read Brave New World, and then we had to choose a nonfiction component of that. And I'm like, nonfiction, Brave New World, what does this even mean? So this was like when Google first came out. And I was like, engineering the humans. Mm -hmm. And then this book came out called Engineering the Human Germline, and so I was like, oh, this is cool. And I, I ordered it. I read it. I'm like, why am I not taught this science in school? This is insane. I never heard anything like this. It's extraordinary. And um, it was basically a series of essays from like leading scientists at the time. So I contacted the author, uh, Gregory Stock. He was then at UCLA and he hosted the entire book. And then he ended up hosting all of the authors to go to UCLA. So when I was already back in California for college, I went up as an invited guest and I got to meet all of my idols back then, which were like Nancy Wexler, who, you know, discovered the gene for Huntington's disease. Yes. And um, a lot of people that, you know, no one's ever heard of before, except for the nerds. And uh, Bruce Ames, who actually uh, was the one who, who invented the Ames test, one of the first uh, ways to test for cancer. Mm -hmm. That's sort of what got me in. And it was because, you know, I just sent an email. What's the worst thing that happens? Nothing. So would you say that that book kind of shaped the next 20 years of your life? Absolutely. It set me off on my scientific path for sure. And then you moved into working with Truly Genetics in, in an embryonic laboratory, correct? Yes. So my okay. first job outside of college was an embryologist in in vitro fertilization, making babies. And did you find that stimulating? Did you find that empowering? What was that experience for you? So coming from a background in genetics, the very interesting thing and the reason I wanted to get into it, which you can call halfway eugenics, is um, inherited disorders. So seeing people suffering from inherited disorders, what you can do, even if you're not infertile, you can test your embryos for sickle cell anemia, Tay-Sachs, cystic fibrosis. There's a whole range of single gene disorders that cause like really debilitating disease. You can test the embryos and you can just keep and implant the healthy ones so that women can have babies knowing they're not going to suffer from a disease they've seen a family member die of, for example. Wait, I didn't realize that so the disease already lives in the embryo. So yeah. you can know it's predetermined what could happen to your child. Exactly. So some genes are single point mutations or single gene mutations, and it's a guarantee that that's going to be their phenotype in their life. And you know, a lot of these diseases, the children don't survive very long. So right. it's nice to be able to prevent that. That's what I was interested in when I got into IVF. Did you feel when you were in that role, did you feel empowered that you were empowering women to be able to bring life into this world, healthy life into this world? Yes, absolutely. Um, I've been in other circumstances, depending on what country I was working in, seeing where especially female children or female infants are not welcomed. 
Oh, wow. So I always love to empower women in, in every moment I can. And I love to see when other women do that too. Did you have any moments in your upbringing that you felt that you were disempowered, that that was something that you knew that it was going to be a mission of yours? Being a Mexican Jew where I grew up was not the easiest thing. And I don't think I realized that coming from San Diego where half my class didn't speak English. Right. right. Um, so... I mean, there was one moment and I don't have to get into the entire story and it was a unfair punishment, but my punishment was to mop the floors in front of my classmates no. as a second grader. Are you kidding me? Were you the only one that had that punishment? Oh, of course. And then my mom called the principal apparently and something along the lines of, well, she's Mexican. <gasps> I'm not okay. Exactly. But the sad thing is, is that would still happen today. Oh, I know. That is so awful. It would still happen today. It's sad. Crazy. Yeah, so I don't think I understand, or I don't think I understood what was going on through that experience, but um, I saw that as a theme growing up where I grew up, and that's why I wanted to leave as soon as possible. So as you were helping these families build a beautiful, a beautiful home with their brand new babies... Mm -hmm. Did you last there forever? Did you know that this was, this, did you feel that this was your calling or was there something else calling you? Yeah, so it was for a while. And then for me, I think I have such a curious mind that I always want to ask questions and like keep delving into answers in a scientific way. And in IVF, it's a phenomenal career, but it is a clinical scientist. So once I learned all the techniques, and I actually hadn't learned all of them yet, but I saw where it was going was that, and then, you know, well, I don't want to be offensive. It's kind of like a copy paste. It's thing. okay. You didn't that's feel that you could be assembly line baby maker. Assembly, you yeah. Like, you didn't that's feel, what you felt like. Yeah. You didn't feel like you could be creative in that space. Like it was yeah. the science and research has already been done. You were now just implementing that incredible science and, and research, but there was not much room to grow. Yeah, I felt like I lacked a, um, kind of an intellectual challenge beyond everything I could learn there. And that's totally okay because yeah. I think that you were tapped in enough to understand what your desires were. And where did that fire and desire bring you? Well, I ended up quitting my job, donating all of my material possessions, which wasn't that much, but <laughs> I left the United States with a backpack and pretty much without a plan. And how old are you at this yeah. point now? 25, I believe it was. Perfect prime. Yeah. Yeah. If there's ever a time to do it, I mean, that's- it is Yeah, now. and all the advice I got from, you know- previous scientific mentors or even some of my family, they said, you know, if you do this, you'll never be able to get back into science, which was the oh, worst. So the goal, no one supported you really. Well, my mom and my sister definitely did, but a lot of the professors like, you can't leave now. Like right. you're not going to get back into it. So the goal wasn't to go and like go to Botswana and help babies or anything like that. It was literally, I just want to get out of here, reset, figure my life out and what's next for me. I wanted to cultivate my purpose. Oh, Ooh. wow. <laughs> so did you know that like going into it or is this now? Or was it just like kind of a run? I knew that I had done some HIV research in college as well. So I knew that if I went out into the world and kind of saw what AIDS looked like, that that would change everything. And it absolutely did. Mm. So where did you go that first? Journey, yeah. yeah. I was traveling around with um, a friend of mine and then I ended up living in Cambodia because I was so impacted also by the history of the people, the genocide they went through, but then to see the resilience of their spirit and their kindness and their warmth, I was like, after what these people have been through, imagine, and then they're just one of the most beautiful people you can meet. So I wanted to just stay there. 
And I ended up getting a volunteer position managing an HIV and AIDS NGO in these slums north of Phnom Penh. And so I lived there and was working with them. And um, the things I saw there and the stories were just really heartbreaking, but also beautiful at the same time. And then what comes after Cambodia? Mm -hmm. I actually, I selected Australia for a very specific reason. So a lot of this um, HIV organizations in Cambodia, and back then, I don't know how it is today, but if you're supporting sex workers or injecting drug users, which are, you know, two of the core groups affected by HIV, if you don't treat them as humans, then that's how HIV is going to spread to the general public. So American funding wouldn't touch those because, you know, they're less than human. They're well, they so feel that they're making, here. these are choices, choices that they're making. This mm -hmm. is not, you know, it's not a pre, like genetic, genetically predisposed. These are people that are choosing to live their lives a certain way. So they are therefore than. not worthy and less than, yes. which is disgusting, by exactly. the way. Exactly. So Australian funding funded sex work and injecting drug use. Um, so I was like, well, if I want to continue learning how to fight HIV, I need to go to this country. So I moved to Australia. That's where I started my master's in infectious disease epidemiology. Got to study abroad in India. It was amazing. When did you return back to the United States? I returned to the United States in 2017. Did you feel your work was done in, in these other countries? What brought you back to the U.S.? Oh, absolutely not finished yet. I, yeah. I returned for my postdoctoral fellowship in HIV. So it was everything I'd done up to the moment had been really like molecular. So now this was moving into the immunological range of my life. So marrying kind of two fields together. The intersection is so important, but if you're just a hardcore virologist, you basically study a virus. You study everything about the virus, every gene associated with the virus, how it works, how it replicates in the cell, how it goes into a latent form where it's hiding from, from the body, for example. So I would say virologists, hardcore virologists, know every single thing there is to know about a virus and how it interacts with every single thing inside the cell it affects. The immunologists, on the other hand, they study the immune response. It can be to a virus or a bacteria or whatever infection they're researching, but the immune system is a beast. It's, it's full of multiple cells. You have your first line of defense, your innate immune system, and then you have your adaptive immune system that comes in can more exquisitely identify a virally infected cell for the very virus you're working with, but it's more about the response of the body. So the virologist is like really intensely studying the virus and its little package of information. The immunologist is studying how is our immune system gonna respond and fight this type of infection. So now you continued your immunology and you bridged your two worlds and you yep. made your intersection happen. That's right. And are you feeling the most fulfilled at this point in time or did or were you continuing to be inspired by your environment and kind of transition? Because the world needs to understand that you not only are the nerdiness, but you are inspired by your surroundings, by the people that you work with on a soulful artistic sense. So when did you start to intersect your world of art and science? Well, that actually is a very specific answer. One of my best friends living with HIV, Brent Allen, who's in Australia, he had this dream, like I've heard him talking about it for six years, of making an actual program of HIV science as art. 
And so we mm-hmm. just got funding for the first time and he invited me on as a scientific curator, which I'm so proud of and is so excited about. What does that mean? So basically we had an application process. We got 80 extraordinary artists supplying that are all living with HIV and it's was so hard to narrow it down, but we had to pick our top 12 artists. Mm-hmm. And then for this huge HIV conference that's going to be in Brisbane and Australia in July, which I'm going to because of this, we then selected the scientific abstracts and matched scientists with artists and basically have them chatting about how to make this science as art. Yeah, exactly, into art. So I'm kind of one of the little translators between the scientists and the artists for the project. So it's really amazing. So you're going to like dumb it down for the artists a little bit. I mean, I don't mean to, that's a terrible yeah. word to use, dumb it down, <laughs> but like you're going to make it more um, understandable. understandable. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And what's really beautiful about this, it's the first time something like this has ever been done. So and cool. he w- he worked so hard, Brent, and he got amazing funding that all the artists get to be paid $5,000 to create their art. And on top of it, we're going to, you know, I don't, we're going to auction the art and then all the money we make from the art is going to go into these programs for HIV and this time in the Asia Pacific region, because that's where the conference is located this year. It will switch every year. Next year, the conference is in Berlin. But, um, but it's so What are they funding? Are they funding care for? Yeah. So we basically have a lot of different programs in the Asia Pacific that then can apply for grants based on how much money we make. So we have a goal, of course, and then just to fund a few extra thousand dollars towards our program goes such a long way. That's really incredible work. That is cool. Can the community or anybody on our listeners, if they wanted to participate or contribute in any way, where can they find this? Oh, absolutely. Um, So on the international AIDS society website, there is a link to science, our HIV sciences art, but we're still working to establish the, um, the funding part of it because it's still all, being created from scratch at the moment. Where are we now when it comes to HIV treatments Mm -hmm. and cure? And where are you now in the science? All right. Awesome. So if you are living with HIV and you have access to antiretroviral therapy, the most important thing is access because not everyone on our planet living with the virus has access to therapy. But if you have it and you take it every single day, your viral load goes undetectable on average within three months. When you're in that realm of being on therapy every day with an undetectable viral load, you cannot transmit virus to somebody else. So the two best things for prevention are PrEP. So for the listeners that don't know, PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis. So if you're at risk for acquiring HIV, you can take a pill every day and then you won't get HIV. So that combined with treatment as prevention or as we call undetectable equals untransmittable. You cannot transmit your virus if you don't have detectable virus. It makes common sense, right? Mm -hmm. So those two things, if we could get the entire world treated who was living with HIV or get prep everywhere it needs to go, it would end transmission. What's the cost? Like to get everybody, what would that cost? First of all, get rid of the stigma. Oh, it's not even a money. You can't even put a money value on that. You have to get rid of the stigma. Hundred percent. It's the hardest part of HIV is stigma and discrimination. But what is the act? Do you know the dollar amount? Like, what is it? Because I feel like there's so many people that have such incredible, excessive wealth. Like, how much can it really cost? Yeah, I don't know the dollar amount because it's different in every country too. Like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has been extraordinary in distributing antiretroviral therapy in Africa. Um, PEPFAR, the only good thing George Bush did as a president was create PEPFAR (laughs) and it was, it's extraordinary. Like it's, it's these HIV clinics, tuberculosis clinics, like put all over different parts of rural Africa that you otherwise wouldn't have 
Mm-hmm. So it's really more in the in the third world countries where this is still yep. an incredible problem. Yeah, it's uh, low access to um, medicine and and science and medicine, low access to antiretroviral therapy. So if you have about forty million people living with HIV today, it's about twenty five million who are on therapy. Do you feel that in the states it is a non that the stigma has lifted, or do you feel like it's just because we are in New York City and I think yeah, that we like live I in totally a bubble? Feel like it's like we live in a total bubble and we watch the TV shows and are unaffected by yeah. by by those shows. But where in the world do you still feel that you wouldn't expect the well, second you leave here? Probably yeah. the very <laughs> evidence of stigma against HIV is the fact that one of my best friends, Ken, living with HIV, Ken Pinkella. He was criminalized by the U.S. Army for being an HIV-positive gay man and slapped with a felony and put in Leavenworth Prison mm-hmm. for living with HIV. And how long ago was this? Is this super Ten recent? Ten years. Ten years ago? Yes. Is he still- Still fighting it, yes. He's still in prison? No, no, he's not still in prison. He, he was out of prison 10 years ago, literally last week, but he's still fighting for the fact that he was a such criminal. a decorated lieutenant colonel yeah. mm-hmm. working in the Pentagon, got shot in the gall in the, I don't know if I can say all this stuff, but he, yeah. was, he was, he was injured for 30 years. He gave his life yeah. to the army and he's still very passionate about it, which is one of the beautiful things about him. And he was a lieutenant colonel working for the Pentagon. So very decorated. So for going from that to being given a felon on his birthday, by the way. Wow. And then losing everything. But not just that. Since even though this was 10 years ago, he he technically has a felony. He's not allowed. He couldn't get Can't a work. job. He can't get yeah. a job. <gasps> exactly. And so what's the, from, what are they saying is the felony? The fact that he was is, oh, is exactly. living with HIV so, or that yeah, he's gay there, or a combination of both? Because he was in the army when HIV was, or sorry, he was, he started in the army when being gay was illegal, then went to don't ask, don't tell, but still prosecutable, which I didn't even understand this fully until I became friends with him and heard, heard what it was like. But his felony is aggravated assault. Whoa. Because his blood is a weapon. I can't. I know. I know. Sick. It's insane. Because as if what, he's going to drip blood onto someone's just, mouth. Like, and like no, it's going to be blood to blood. So and like, the crazy thing is, you know, like you I just told you guys, if you're on therapy, you can't transmit virus anyway. So the right. stigma is insane about this. And he's not the only one in our country, not the only one in New York City fighting this currently for their lives. So that's one of the activism things I do with my students last year. Um, they organized a rally for uh, on World AIDS Day last year against HIV criminalization. And it, it's just amazing to see when people don't know anything about this virus. And then I teach my students. They're just like, wait, is this for real? I have never even heard that people, maybe I'm just naive and not in tune to these types of things, but I've never heard that people were going to jail Exactly. I didn't either until I read your information and we had discussed this either. And it really is sad that it is an issue still to this day. Heartbroken. Yeah. And then that's one of the problems. If you know you can go to prison in the United States just for living with HIV, Mm -hmm. you're not going to want to get tested. That was you're not going to know your status. And if you don't know your status, you're just going to start spreading it. Yeah. Yeah, Then you're transmissible. And now there's now I, I I did not read the article, but I saw that there's a lot of states that are either forbidding prep or they're making it incredibly difficult to get your hands hands on on it it. Mm -hmm. along this insane line of band drag queens, queens, but yet we have children dying every single day, but don't, don't ban guns, but don't even get me started on that one. 
tell us a little bit about your educational journey as becoming a professor. So it's been amazing. I've been teaching at Fordham since 2020, where my interview and my first two semesters were all on Zoom. So that was a whole different experience. I'm sure. Um, but now in person, of course, for a couple of years, and I teach at Fordham and at NYU. But a lot of my students that are freshmen and sophomores came out of two years of pandemic Zoom high school and everything that that meant for them. So imagine, you know, coming from Wisconsin zoom high school and then into a classroom where you actually learn about the virus of hiv on a molecular level you learn about the immune response but then you get to meet someone living with hiv and who was criminalized by it so i like to teach both parts i like to teach the nerdy molecular virology and immunology of the science that i'm interested in but then i also like to show them what that looks like in real life and i think that that actually is way more impactful for my students especially since they're not science students, but to see that, wow, this is how this virus is today, right now in the city I'm living in. How have your students inspired you or have they helped you kind of think of new ways to execute your work? Oh, that's a fantastic question, actually, because a student at mine at Fordham, Gisela, she is a phenomenal force. So one of the things I like to ask my students at the beginning of every lecture is tell me something fun you did on the weekend or something interesting. And she had organized a rally to protect women who had been a woman who had been raped in Kosovo. And I was like, wait, you can just make a rally. I was like, I didn't know you can just do that. Tell me all the like details. Like you just go to the police department, you get a, a permit for sound permit or whatever. And so because of her, I made her class organize a rally against criminalization for HIV. So I didn't know I could do that until I heard from my student that she'd done that. I feel that you are now kind of in a transition into like, your biggest spiritual soul. Like we're calling you a unicorn, but did you always feel like you were a unicorn that you could express your unicornism? Or did you feel that <laughs> it's been over time that you've been allowed to creatively express yourself outside of the confines of science, of being the scientist? I think what also makes me an interesting scientist is the creative mind that I have. But I do feel like I was so, so, so super focused on science and lab work and everything that I kind of forgot the rest of myself. So the funny thing is that I always tell my students, because they're always worried, what am I supposed to do with my life? And I say, the 20s are for figuring it out and the 30s are for making it happen. So figure it all out. And then I'm like, wait, but I'm turning 40 and I like, I feel like I'm at the beginning all over again. So what am I going to do next? It's, it's interesting. HIV will always be a part of my life, my personal life and my professional life one way or another, no matter what. Um, but the career side, I am absolutely loving teaching so much and it, it's even expanding beyond teaching. Like NYU has invited me to present in London in June at this, basically this symposium that's aiming to decolonize their, um, global studies, uh, curriculum, because we do learn a lot of what I teach is science that has been discovered in the United Kingdom and the United States or different countries in Europe and it's about trying to understand where a lot of other intellect can come from and to teach our students that it's not just so Eurocentric. So, I mean, that came out of the fact that I'm a professor at NYU and I had no idea that was going to happen. So that's something that's really interesting. Um, I'm also on the board of directors of Elevate New York, which is an organization I've been volunteering with for a few years. 
And um, basically they work with underserved urban youth in the South Bronx. And for me, that's such an extraordinarily important piece too, because of what I did experience as a Mexican growing up in a very white world. Um, so just again, access and, you know, making these children understand that they can see themselves in these big positions in New York City and beyond. You had mentioned earlier that one at one point of your life, success was finding a cure to HIV or getting all these different degrees. But now success for you is experiencing a life full of love. So how has love changed your life? Well, first of all, Mateo is standing right there. <laughs> Hi. So for me... I mean, I, I was really closed off to anything outside of work for so long just because that's the way I developed. It's no one's fault but my own, and all I did was work. And then one summer I decided I would be taking a step back and just, you know, I've lived in New York for four years, but I don't know what Tribeca is. I don't know where Soho is. I, I hardly knew anything about the city that I kept telling people I was obsessed with it. And they're like, well, why are you obsessed with it? I didn't know why. I lived in Cornell Housing. I walked four blocks to work and back, and that's – Pretty much all I did for a yeah, long but time. But you probably felt the beat. Like you felt the beat and the uh, energy of New York City. Yeah, I did make a few friends and that helped too. But um, yeah, so I took the step back, um, not working weekends anymore, limiting to 10-hour days from 12 or 15, then finally just doing eight-hour days. Yeah. And then acquired a boyfriend because I gave myself some space to go out and meet people. Were you pressuring yourself to meet somebody? No, or no, no, no just not like, at all. Cause like that was so, no, the pressure for me was to just live a little bit more. And then through him, um, you found a man that's going to whip you all over New York city. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. My, my life definitely transformed because of him in so many ways. But what was really important for me is that he made me see that life isn't just career. And it could be art, it could be creativity, yeah. and it could be fun. And that was really hard for me at first, but I've fully embraced it. And even him and I are creating art together right now. I love that. Well, I can't Tell wait to see it. it. <laughs> so this is part of the weird way that I am too. But um, so we were just in Namibia together, his first time in sub-Saharan Africa. And we were volunteering at animal sanctuaries. So like spent three weeks there, um, two different sanctuaries, working with cheetahs, leopards, lions, and all the way down to meerkats and the cute little things too. Well, they're all cute. Every animal is amazing. Um, it was very intensive volunteer work, I can tell you, for sure. Um, and then we did have a week out in the desert, which was like the holiday part of it. But so all of his photos that he's taking, we definitely want to make an exhibit out of because he's a photographer. Um, but I started making art on it. So he taught me bridge and Lightroom. And then I think the first day I learned Lightroom, I didn't even look outside my computer for 10 straight hours. He's yeah. like, what yes. are you doing? And then I taught myself Photoshop while he was away at fashion weeks in Europe. And, um, I'll just have to show you what happened from that. And I was like, I didn't know I could do that. So it was really beautiful. It was, it's fun. I think that the, uh, the nerdy brain can also be a very creative brain. It's I think two different sides, but Absolutely. when you have that type of like focus. Yes. I think that it can really bring out the beautiful creative side and it's, uh, yeah. So what his love has done for me is to reintroduce me to my creativity. If you needed to de-identify from the scientist, who are you now identifying with? Is it another title or what, what is it? Yeah. So for most of my adult life now, I would say I'm an HIV cure scientist. If anyone asks anything about me or 
I introduced myself, that was who I was. I'm an HIV care scientist, and I didn't see any part of myself outside of that. And it became so ingrained in who I was that I couldn't even think about having a life outside of it. And in the last year, it's it's been really, really difficult but to de-identify that. And now I'm just Talia. I don't know what it is, but we all identify ourselves as what our careers and our jobs are. And we are all so much more than that. It's, yeah, it's 70% of our lives, but, you know, whatever, who cares? Like, it, I mean, it's nice that you were doing something and still are doing something that you're so passionate about, but I think it's so important to explore who Talia is, who Paula is, who Monica is, mm-hmm. because that's what we were put on this earth to do. Like, to, truly, like, you know, I wasn't put out on this earth to sell things to people. Like, I know for shit sure that is not what it is. And I'm on a journey myself as well, trying to figure out, like, I know who Paula is, but I still don't, I still can't figure out, like, why exactly she was put out onto this earth. So, explore that more. And it's like so scary. It was, it was so hard that I had to ask my friends living with HIV. What if I'm not an HIV care scientist anymore? And what was their answer? What did they tell you? We want you to be happy, Talia. I love that. Good. It was, it was important. That was important for me. So I think we're ready to move on to some quick fire questions. Are you ready? I'm excited. These these ones are like so no pressure. They're easy. <laughs> okay. So what are three things that you think of every single day? Cats. <laughs> Do you love cats? Like, oh my God, I'm obsessed with cats. Like I think Mateo and I watch cat videos before we do anything else when we wake up. Um, oh. Well, we're always looking at Abyssinian kittens recently. What are those look I don't like? Know what those are. Oh my god, little aliens with big ears. Oh, oh, I think I know which ones you're talking about. They're yeah. so cute. <laughs> and I take care of my neighbor's cat during the day. His name is Lulu, and he's a Scottish fold. And he's just he's like loving me right now, purring a lot and meowing, and it's just so cute. <laughs> so <laughs> okay, so cats, cats, cats. Mateo, my love. Oh, sweet. I always think about the next adventure we're going to go on together. So that's always fun. Something to look forward to. The next one being Jamaica to celebrate the birthday and engagement of my best friend. Oh, beautiful. And the third thing I think about every day would have to be cheese. Oh, okay. (laughs) She's a cheese lover. And and she likes junk food, guys. This was like, to me, the most uh, incredible thing I've learned today. I went from limiting myself to one Big Mac a year to one Big Mac a month. Listen, you got a YOLO, right? I think that's that's what the kids are are calling it these days. Uh, If you had a warning label, what would it be? (laughs) Shouldn't we ask Mateo that one? (laughs) My warning label would be... Passionate. Okay. That's a good one. I think that's a good one because that might freak some people out. Yeah, because sometimes when I get explosively passionate, passionate, it's passionate, like about vaccines. Passionate. Oh, got it, got it, got it. (laughs) And then our last and final lady, how do you take your oysters? Yeah. Raw. Oh, Ooh, maybe this, that should be your warning label. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the triple X version now. The sun is going down. She likes it raw. raw. <laughs> okay. Talia, thank you so much for joining us. This thank was you both. so amazing. I think we're going to leave the world a little bit more smart because of you. Oh, my. And in touch with their creative side. Exactly. I feel that you really do uh, bridge that 
that gap between the world of sciences and art. And like I said before, we're, we're all better for knowing you. And I think that what you're doing is incredible. So thank, thank you. you for sharing this time thank with us. Thank you both so much. Thank this you. This was fun. It was fun, right? Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Worlds Your Oyster. If you love what you're listening to, be sure to like, rate, and review this episode wherever you listen to your podcasts. And follow us on Instagram at World's Your Oyster. And share this episode with a friend. We'd really appreciate it. Bye-bye.